Hello and welcome to this Serena special from the Festival Gallery at the Galway International Arts Festival. It really is great to be back in Galway. We'll be here for two nights, in fact broadcasting from Galway tomorrow night as well. What better way to celebrate the return of live arts events than with some music? If a sultry menage of Bjork, Billie Holiday and Philip Glass got together at the Wickerman Festival, According to Irish Theatre magazine, the result would be the music of Anna Malarkey. Anna plays the Roisin Dove in Galway tonight, but she's here with us now with musician Sam Wright on bass. This is a song called Falling Apart. Apart from Anna Malarkey there and Sam Wright on bass. Anna, as I said, plays the Rushing Dove tonight as part of the Galway International Arts Festival. Her debut album, Falling, will be released this year. And on the basis of that song, I certainly want to hear more of that album. As I said before we heard Anna singing, we're here in the Festival Gallery, surrounded by the awe-inspiring and dramatic work of the Brazilian sculptor Anna Maria Pacheco. The exhibition is called Remember and is very much the centrepiece of the visual arts offering at this year's Galway International Arts Festival. Uh, we will be taking a tour of that show, by the way, with Anna Maria Pacheco on tomorrow night's programme. But with me now, sitting in front of me here in the Festival Gallery, a trio 
of artistic collaborators, having worked together on Mr. Man, playwright and director Enda Walsh and composer Donica Dennehy, embarked on a trilogy of operas. They started with The Last Hotel, followed that with the second violinist, now they're back with the third in the trilogy, The First Child. Also with us is the artistic director of the Galway International Arts Festival, Paul Fahey, who once again with Enda Walsh has been working on a number of art installations in the setting of a room. They have shared various rooms with us in past festivals, a kitchen, a hotel room, a girl's bedroom, a bathroom, an office, a waiting room and a changing room. The most recent piece is called the middle bedroom. Delighted to have Enda, Donacha and Paul with me on Arena uh, from Galway. Enda, yeah. um, we spoke oh, yeah. this time last year, in yeah. fact, and you were just heading into rehearsals, if I remember That's right. right. I was raggedy, I think. <laughs> I was sort of barely standing up. Right? You, yeah, you, you, you were starting on the first child yeah. at that time. Now, it has been realised. It was there mm-hmm. as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival last autumn. Just give us the... It's a kind of a suburban tale, really, or a suburban setting at any rate. Yeah, we took the sort of lead from... Our first one was uh, The Last Hotel and then The Second Violinist. And when we made The Last Hotel, we thought, well, let's do another one. And as we were doing the other one, I think it sort of morphed into a trilogy, didn't it, Donica? But the starting point for us were two Dubliners and of a sort of similar age. And we t- The Last Hotel started... At that, it, it, that has a sort of suburbanness to it, a banality to it, an ordinariness to it, and yet it sort of it morphs into this real, you know, darkness. This um, uh, so incrementally they've got like, I think, more banal and more dark, <laughs> and, and we've, we've ended up in this with this one where it's actually it becomes quite mythic and huge. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah. an, that's an interesting uh, kind of track that Enda gives us there because you know if you hear suburban and opera in the same uh, sentence, you kind of think, do they actually go together? Isn't opera huge and melodramatic and isn't suburban, drab and dull and banal? Donacha. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that question. Not at all. Um, Yeah. um, That's the tension at all of them. Because um, even when I'm writing them, when Enda sends me the script, like I'm looking for the the real drama and mythic in it right from the start and there's this tension Mm. sometimes between the music and the words and then they kind of meet like halfway through it sort of explodes Uh, and that actually has been a fascinating friction at the heart of all three operas and I even each time I'm writing it I go Jesus what am I going to do with this bit (laughs) and like this later bit yes but here, and, and like I, I, I love Enda, uh, but I'd curse him for a little, like a few days, and then I'd find a way. I know what he's, he's playing with me all the time. As To be honest, I'm playing with him as yeah. well. And, um, and there is that kind of, um, it gives this mm. tension that doesn't ordinarily exist in opera. Uh, and, it, 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 and that's actually what I find really fascinating about it. You know, yesterday in rehearsal, Neve, who plays the character of Alva in The First Child, was singing. Maybe just ex- give us a, a, an explanation of who Alva is in as much as you can say where it all well, fits together. Alva is the, the mother mm. and, uh, uh, of, of this young child and, and um, she's quite successful in the wellness industry. She looks like she has everything together, but she might have some sort of past, let's say, and, um, and a future, of course. Uh, but... Uh, but she sings this bit where she talks about her obsession as a teenager with this other character, and she sings the small dramas of suburban life. And I, uh, this line that Anna has, and I think, oh, that's what they are. It's these, what you think are small dramas, but in there is this volatile mix, you know. I guess that's there in, in, in the writing of any play, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, this idea that, I, mean, I remember often thinking growing up, how come my mother can say, put that cup down, and it, had, it means about three million other things other than put that cup down. Um, I, I suppose that's what you're looking for, isn't it? How what's seemingly banal and suburban is in fact way more dramatic than we you're, think. You're sort of, I mean, all drama is about sort of like denying information or denying sort of uh, emotion or, you know, entertainment mm. <laughs> and then giving it at a particular sort of time. And the thing about opera is that it sets up, because of the sort of collective si- the size of it and also the collective focus of a band at it and sort of singers at it, 
there's a real, and his extraordinary music, there's an extraordinary tension to, although the singers aren't sort of, you know, singing about baby carriers and, you know, like, <laughs> and, and the weight of a baby in a baby carrier and whether it's going to fall out and topple on the ground. I mean, that's, that's not, and yet the music adds this ridiculous tension. So, I mean, it's, it's all my, I think my job is a provocation to Donica. And then when Donica sort of like, gives me the music back, then it's a provocation to me as a director of like, oh, well, how the hell am I going to stage this? So is, that's how it works. It is a back and forth. It isn't a, yeah. here is the text, go off and compose some music, Mr. Composer Boy. Well, we always discuss, discuss what that. the premise of each opera mm. will be. And then we're, we're really efficient, which is something I really love. He then goes away. He and he usually sends me a few pages of what he thinks the script will be. He says, do you, what do you think of this? And then we, we, we chat about it. And then he goes away and writes it. And then I go away. He probably forgets about it then because it takes me so long. Like a year later, come back with the music or even a bit longer. And then he does it. And there's an awful lot that's left unsaid between us. Yeah. But we're... We know what each other are thinking, or, or, or yeah. at least they're playing with it, and it is, is really interesting. Also, I want to say something about banality. I hope this doesn't come across as too banal. Uh, is that um, there's no throwaway banal line in Enda, any of Enda's writing. Something you think is a banal thing has this kind of germ of something that happens later. Uh-huh. It's just mm. in that, but it's put in this, it's shrouded in this clothing early on. It's, it's really fascinating. I love that. Yeah, and then, I mean, it's not as if you're a stranger to music. I think music has always been very important here. David Bowie and Lazarus famously uh-huh. comes to mind, once comes uh-huh. to mind as, as, as well. Is working on opera, is, is that a very different realm from, I suppose, the more popular idea of somebody like Bowie or somebody like the music in once? I don't think it is that sort of different. I mean, it's still about, like, you know, telling a story and when you're going to actually tell the audience sort of something and when you're not going to tell them and the tension of that. It's, it seems the same, but to me, I mean, the, the actual... The, it's been an extraordinary sort of collaboration with these three, and I think we've, he's really sort of pushed my playwriting sort of when I go down sort of sort of play I, I think he's affected it by our by the way that we've gone at these sort of three works uh, in what way I'm not too sure yet but I can feel that you know something you has know, happened it's, it's, yeah, being sort of stretched in a different way Paul Fahey um, is also with us here at the table in the festival gallery um, Paul as the artistic director of, of the Galway International Arts Festival you have worked with and a, a number of rooms are we on number what are we're on number nine number nine I thought it was number nine all right the middle room now explain we've got a sense of the nature of the collaboration between Enda and Donica. explain the collaboration between yourself and Enda well, first of all just to add in terms, of, in terms of the opera sometimes the word banal can be awful the banal, there's never anything banal in anything that, that, that Enda writes the it's it, um, but the opera I think is one of the most spectacular things I've seen in, in a number of years. And audiences who've never tried that, that art form, I think this absolutely is the production for them to see. It's mm. incredible to look at, whereas oh, it just came from the Bailey Allen Hall and the, the university where the show is going to be performed next week. And it's quite breathtaking to go into the, just the scale of the seating bank and the view of what the set looks like, which is incredible. And the visuals by Jack Phelan on this in, mm-hmm. like, massive screen. Um, and also then the acoustic in there is incredible. So it, it, yeah, it is, it is, it's breathtaking, the show. It really is. And, and you know, um, yeah, so I'll say no more. It's breathtaking. But, but do tell yeah. me a little bit about the middle room and, yeah, and the, the, the middle room. The, 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 the ninth one. And, 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 and actually, this one actually ended up sent me the sent me the script. Sometimes we're back and forth like what mm. Donick is kind of saying. But this one actually pretty much arrived fairly f- fully formed, I think, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and it's a great story about this this man Richard, who's um, probably in his mid- middle to late forties, who uh, who's the only voice that we hear, but he, he cares for his father. He's very likable. Uh, he's very funny. But again, there's like layers and layers that are being excavated as there as there always are. Um, and um, and so and then so as as he's kind of telling us the story of this this house where he lives, which is kind of like a, you know, like not a particularly nice house. This is a spare bedroom, the middle bedroom. It's kind of the, the, the kind of the, the messy bedroom. Um, they're kind of, we think newish to, the, to, to, to that neighborhood. Um, and then there's a fantastic kind of twist to it at the end. But visually, um, it's, you know, it's quite chaotic. You, yeah. you, you, you walk in and it's, it's like stuff has just been kind of thrown in there, like probably a room we all have in our house, you know, the one that nobody sort of sleeps in. Um, but, it, but, but what it does, though, is, it, is it, it tells you an awful lot about what actually kind of goes on inside this guy's head. Um, 
the, 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 the chaos recording of machines, it. the chaos of the chaos of his life. I don't know what you would <laughs> add anything to, to that end. No, I mean they're just they're incredibly they're, they're amazing things to do and, and, and to do it over sort of like nine years. But I think it's like, it was as a boy when I started writing when I was about like 14 or 15. I always thought, well, actually, sort of like writing was about meeting strangers, and this is a real sort of distillation of that of just mm. having that one-to-one -one contact with someone. How many how many in people go into the room at a time? Four or five, I think. Yeah, yeah. So small numbers, uh, yeah. and that's part of the excitement of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's have a listen to a clip which features, uh, which is from the middle room. It features Rory Nolan as the he's the kind of playing the, the or giving us the voice of the main character, uh, and be warned a little bit of uh, strong language towards the end of this clip. It's quiet outside, finally. Millie is asleep and purring on my lap. Devotion bought with another fish finger. Bedroom lights extinguish all life inside those houses. I turn off mine, too, and pull up the blinds, as I do nightly, and stand by the window. Like an overweight Caesar holding a cat. The cul-de-sac looks like it's been painted. Amber lights flatten small houses. Gardens feel like they've been rolled out like disappointing rugs. The detail and noise of all those people in their homes, in their beds, my neighbors, they're fucking dead to me. And, and I wonder, wonder why, why we hold on with tears in our eyes. And I wonder and why, Millie, we have to break down to make things all right. There we go, that's Rory Nolan and Curtis Steiger uh, in the little yeah. clip there from the middle room. I warned about the language, I didn't warn about Curtis Steiger. Whose Sorry idea, that. That whose idea was that? <laughs> <laughs> whose idea was that? And, uh, it was mine, I mean, it came out, I want to, it's, it's sort of set in a specific time when Agassiz is winning the sort of the final, whenever that was in the 90s, and mm. Curtis Steiger just happened to be sort of in the charts, and it's a cracking, cracking song. And you know I love a good crap song. <laughs> <laughs> An overweight size Caesar holding a cat is my favourite line from that. Is he a little bit pompous, this gentleman? Ridiculously sort of pompous, sort of Falstaffian, sort of like in a, in a council house. Which and is I, a role I think Rory has played, hasn't he? I he think. has, yeah. and I love his voice. I've always loved Rory's voice, and that's a sort of, you know, so it was a... A real, you know, it's a great thing to write for. For you, Paul, this collaboration, obviously as the artistic director of the Galway International Arts Festival this year, you must be so delighted that you can actually have people in places, in venues, all of that. But that must have made the planning rather difficult because when, when did you even know that that could happen and how far ahead do you usually have to be? Yeah, well, like normally you're planning, you know, a year or two ahead for, for, mm. for festivals. Um, but a lot happens in short, short periods of time. And But, there's, you know, August generally after the festival in July is kind of a sort of a you know a lull where you can kind of at least draw draw a breath and then you have 11 more months before things happen but because the festival happened in September last year there was this kind of false sense of kind of oh we're fine in October and then you realized oh my god it's it's like seven months away or whatever yeah. and then but then obviously we you know there was there was the the uh, Christmas the, the lockdown and the pandemic was kind of ongoing or whatever so you know we didn't really know in January what, January what was going to happen in July mm -hmm. but so there were there were some things like you know we'd been dealing with Steppenwolf we'd been dealing with um we were to, to present the, the, the first child last year as well. So there, you know, there were things that were kind of there that we needed yeah. to, to uh, just to, to lock down new dates for. Um, and indeed, it, we'll be talking to members of Stephen Wolf later in the programme. Excellent, yeah. But, uh, but what's been fantastic is having audiences, you know, back like the gallery's been yeah. busy since we opened where we are now. And just that sense of people just dying to kind of roll their sleeves up and get stuck in. Is the, if doing the room projects with Enda, is that kind of, it's like getting away from the office for a little bit of time. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, like, it's great just to kind of turn off the phone and get in there, and you're down on your hands and knees. And the, you know, they're 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 created very much like as art pieces, as opposed to kind of like you know sharp design where somebody comes in and. and you arrive in and it's kind of built for you. So yeah. you're there um, making it look the way we want it to look. So, Donica, I couldn't help but notice when Anna Malarkey was playing that you were glued to the keyboard that oh, she was playing. Sense. He, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. This, this is your background, of course, in, in, in yeah. electronic music. Was, yeah. your, was your inner nerd jumping up and down with sheer delight and working out what was going on or what no, was happening? No, actually, I, I, I actually just thought it was all very beautiful. Yeah. And I was looking at the 
sine waves versus sawtooth waves a little bit. Ah, you see. But um, one of them was very college. But um, yeah, no, I was, I was really, I thought that was a beautiful song. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. in fact, one of your former students, Emer Noon, is going to be with us later. Oh, yeah, she's I, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I can take much credit for Emer. I think I, I talked for all big... about of a year, but I, she is such a force. That's yeah. amazing. In fact, we were just uh, texting each other the other day. I was in Dallas, and we were sharing stories about Dallas. So, uh, <laughs> And um, yeah, she's. A, and you're not telling me she's what a real stories about. <laughs> yeah, she is. She is a real force. I'm looking yeah. forward to speaking to her. So, um, does this occupy the the, the the mind really for the next? Yeah. Minor? Did yeah. it change much? By the way, I meant to ask you that. I think so. I think you. So when you when you made it for the Dublin Theatre Festival last year, and I saw it was a shock to make it work, but it's it's, it's fantastic to. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be stronger and, and 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 better is my feeling. I think the oh, yeah. the singers sound incredible. It's already the first rehearsal was already at a higher place than yeah the one we left oh, off yeah. yeah. And and I mean in a play you might rewrite a line here and there. Can you do that in an opera? It's much more set in terms of all the elements. Well, that you've have to come together, Donna. You can. I I mean I. Right till we opened in Dublin, I was making changes to the orchestration and cut and things. I mean, yeah. I remember even the very fine. So you do, yeah. And you never know when we're doing the things. I'm like, oh, yeah, we have to change that bit here. Or, but yeah, so Put you stuff still. Back in. Yeah. yeah, and that's, yeah, that's the way it should be because yeah. you can do that in a collaboration. Yeah. You can yeah. make, it, make yeah. it work. And you, yeah. you are the director as well. And so yeah. you, can, you can say yes. You yeah, as long as the creators are still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully you will be before the hopefully. opera starts this later this week. All right, listen, great to speak to all yeah, three you of you. Too. The First Child, composed by Donica Dennehy, written and directed by Andrew Walsh, is at the Bailey Allen Hall in NUIG as part of the Galway International Arts Festival. The Middle Room is at the Columban Hall on the Sea Road in Galway. Festival, uh, the, the opera, it, July the 18th to the 23rd at 7pm, and then on Sunday the 24th at 6pm, no shows on the 19th or 22nd. Sorry? And then touring. The, the and then touring, yeah. yes. Yeah. So the Irish National Opera, go to their website, you'll get, get, get all of the details. In the collaboration with Landmark. In collaboration yeah. with Landmark. Oh, you've made everybody happy now. <laughs> yeah. Can I, I give out the Galway International Arts Festival I website, Paul? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think it's at giaf.ie. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. Now everybody is happy. Yeah. We'll be back with more from the Galway International Arts Festival after this break. And welcome back to the Galway International Arts Festival and the Festival Hall. Well, we heard a little bit about her before the break from making history in 2020 as the first female to conduct uh, the orchestra at the Academy Awards to composing scores for TV, films and video games like World of Warcraft. Emer Noon is to kind of develop on a quote that Donica Dennehy gave us, an Irish force of nature in oh, the global gosh. world of music. <laughs> but she is from East Galway. Uh, originally from the village of Kilconnell, splits her time between her home place uh, and Los Angeles. She's here in Galway, obviously, for the festival. Yesterday, she spoke to a packed house as part of the Arts Festival's First Thought series of talks, which goes on throughout the fortnight. And delighted to have you with us this evening. I suppose you'll be telling me that, in fact, you owe everything to Donica Dennehy, or he's not here, so you can tell us the oh, truth. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I knew nothing about music at all. I could barely spell my own name before I met Donica. <laughs> but it's good that he didn't claim all the praise then, isn't it? Uh, in fact, uh, you, you spoke at your, your talk uh, yesterday about your home place and how Kilconnell and people in Kilconnell were very much part of your initial musical formation and hugely important to it. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to say that um, the Irish public education is, is really, really strong and the, the impact that national school teachers have on young people, young artists all over the country can't be understated. And in fact, it was my you know, primary school teacher that picked me out and said I had to study music. And who was five. that? Margaret Blahine is her name. She was our, our uh, junior infants, senior infants <laughs> teacher. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's, it can't be understated, the, the impact that I call them my angels, you know, yeah. all of the individuals over time. Because I didn't grow up in a, you know, professional musician family and um, we didn't know anybody. I came from a village of 500 people. 
uh, went to art school we're in Ballinasloe, which is about 6,000 people. So we weren't connected in the music industry or mm. in classical music or anything like that. And, 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 you know, and people will often talk about, despite the fact that in, for, for the most part in Irish schools and in primary schools, you don't have instruments freely available to, to children, which you might have in other jurisdictions. Uh, you, but you did in Kilconnell. We did. Have, yeah. you, you had instruments, but you also had a village composer. We did. You see, that's the, you know, if you can see it, you can be a thing. Yeah. And it's normalizing certain careers, making them not special, you know. I mean, our composer lived across the road from the school. Who was he? Paddy Fahey. So Paddy is an incredibly renowned, world-renowned and very well-respected composer of traditional Irish music. His style is definitely, it's uniquely his. And, uh, you know, that was growing up, it was like, oh yeah, you know, you can be a farmer, you can be a teacher, you can be a doctor, you can be a composer. That's all people that I know. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's important for kids to grow up just, just seeing these things, being out there and real and an everyday thing, you know? Uh, your, your initial ambition or early ambition was to conduct the orchestra at La Scala. Yeah, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but that's, time. But that's what I wrote in my career guidance essay at age 12, what I want to do when I, you know, when I grow up. <laughs> um, yeah, I was 12. I will conduct the orchestra at La Scala, not I want to. I found it recently. I was like, oh my God, well, what a mad child. Remember, it does say I will, yes. not I want to, so <laughs> it, it, it will happen. Uh, when did, because obviously video games has been very central, and music for video games is very central to, to what yeah. you do as a professional composer. When did that start to kick into place? Well, my love has always been the orchestra and whatever form that took. So I did everything I could to learn as much as I could about the orchestra itself, orchestration, conducting, composition. And my background is, is very traditionally classic, classical with a smattering of trad music thrown in because that's where I grew up mm. in East Galway. Um, but uh, it was following my love of the orchestra, really, and my love of... Um, descriptive music, music that uh, elicits a particular emotion from the audience or music that stimulates the imagination of the general public. Um, I, I was writing atonal music and high art music when I was 17, 18, you know, through my early 20s. Mm. And I realized I wanted to, I wanted members of my family to be able to come and hear something and kind of get something out of it that that they didn't have to have studied music in order to be able to to get out of it. That was something that was very visceral. I'm wondering too, you know, obviously that descriptive aspect is important in terms of, of video video game music and filmic music, film music yes. as well. But there's something about video games, you know, you're probably going to have headphones on when right. you're playing it. So it's yeah. quite an immersive uh, you know, uh, activity. You're probably going to be locked on the screen. So it really is a very for the most part, solitary activity. So does that affect the type of music that, you, that you're composing? You're thinking, yeah, this is getting right inside the head of the listener. Well, one of the things I feel, like as an artist in general, that my, my job is to take the audience member out of their everyday lives and out of the to-do list and the problems and the car needs to get fixed and I need to pay the electricity bill, all this stuff. Clear that all away and bring people out of that world, whether it's a live concert or a video game or a film, into this fantasy world, into this world where anything is possible. You know, you can be a superhero, you can be uh, a voyager, you can be um, whatever you want to be. And that's kind of fun and, and being, you know, I think every artist has that ambition to take people out of their daily grind and take them somewhere else. And you're a gamer yourself, uh, quite an avid gamer, I believe. Well, I, I don't, I have two small kids and <laughs> I have two careers. So it's like, as much as I can, I want to keep current and I want to know what's going on. And, and, um, and I have a, an epic, as he calls himself, a pro gamer. He's eight in my house that advises me on everything. So Ah, so in fact, it's, it's advice from the younger gamers. Does, does that guide your music? Are they the kind of the first not readers, but the first listeners to some pieces. Do you ever test them out on them? Um, I can't. 
I can't because um, video, the video game industry is so secretive and so. <laughs> I just worked on something, and you would have if you tortured me, you wouldn't get it out of me. You know, it's uh, it's incredibly proprietary, and um, they don't want any spoilers before anything. So, if I if I shared something and it ended up online, there would be you know it'd be news. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I guess you you do see their reactions to it when it does eventually make it into an actual yes. place. Yes, I hear from people every day. I hear from video game music fans literally every day. In, in terms of uh, the Oscars and the conducting there, I mean, it was such a big event, the fact that you were this first female composer. Will, will we ever get to a point, or first female conductor, I beg your pardon, will we ever get to a point where we, we can ignore the first female anything in that yeah, respect? I think, it's, I think it's getting old, and I love that. You yeah. know? I love, oh, grown, the first female this, the first female that. It's, because, it's getting old, and that's great. But now the work is to make sure that mm. that... We, you know, we don't have ceiling breakers and tokenism that we now start really doing the work to, to equalize and, and to make sure we have more balance across all aspects of the music industry. And I guess the other thing that really strikes me in terms of your professional way of handling yourself is this double base, as in your base both here, it's half the year here and half the year in, in LA. I suppose that's becoming easier with technology to be wherever you want to be. Absolutely. As long as I can get to an airport and get to high-speed broadband, I'm, I'm good. And we have that in Kilconnell. Woo! <laughs> so. Well, listen, long may that continue. And you promise me when you're going to La Scala that you will talk to me beforehand? I will indeed. I'm doing an opera this coming week with Stuart Copeland. Of and the police, of police yeah, fame, yeah. In, in, uh, Chrissy Hine and Stuart Copeland's opera in Milan. So we're getting closer. We're getting closer all the yeah, time. Yeah, getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, great to see you as always, Emer, and thanks, thanks for coming Sean. in to us today. Thanks a lot. Not at all. That's Emer Noon. And delighted now to be joined by the playwright, Sonia Kelly, whose connection with the Galway International Arts Festival goes back to 2018, when her play Furniture was part of Druid's season of new work. This year, her play The Last Return is running at the McLally Theatre, uh, Druid's building, of course. Uh, the Last Return, uh, I was trying to work out what this might be about. It's simply about not being able to get a ticket to a place, Sonia. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, in kind of theatre sort of um, vernacular, the returns are the, 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 the tickets that are available at the very last minute for any show. And uh, this show, this play, is a play about people who are trying to get into a play. And they're queuing up to see if on the last night of a very, very celebrated show, um, if they can get a last-minute ticket and snatch the last possible chance ever, ever, to see this play. Yes, and they do say right about what you know about. Now, obviously you know about theatre, but you have a direct, <laughs> an actual experience of yes. doing for a return that fed into this. The, the, the play was inspired by a trip I took to Berlin in 2017, 2018. I went there for New Year's Eve and on New Year's Day I saw that the Schaubühne uh, was uh, presenting Richard III, uh, Thomas Ostermeyer's Richard III, and it was the very last performance. So I thought, because I know a little bit of theatre and there's always house seats and, you know, if you're there early enough, you'll get a ticket because they always release house seats. So I went to queue and the box office person said, oh, just queue over there. And I said, well, you know, which end is the end of the queue? And she was like, I don't know, it's up to the queue to organise themselves. And... and, uh, and what followed, I, I can only describe as three hours of carnage um, as people showed up to queue for a last return. And by queuing, I mean jump the queue, um, pretend that they were here earlier, pretend they couldn't understand what you were saying so they could sit ahead of you. People put their bags on chairs. People, it was, it was um, I, it, and it just made me think about conflict and scale and the way people behave around each other when they know that they will never see each other again and, and the function of the social veneer and um, how we deploy charm to get what we want. And I, I, I just thought about what is the difference between the territory of the stool in front of me and the, uh, being ahead, the person being ahead of me and me trying to get that territory and 
the grapple for territory on a global scale. Yeah, because uh, interestingly enough, we hear uh, the, the European Union anthem, I think, very early on in yes. Beethoven's Ode to Joy, at the beginning of the play, in fact. So you are obviously thinking uh, of how the, the, I suppose, the micro can yes. really tell us things on a, on a macro basis. On the macro scale and also um, it's an examination of Europe. It's an examination of its, its horror and its, and its, um, its beauty and uh, its relationship to the rest of the world and particularly Africa in terms of... Um, creating the Europe we know in the West, what we perceive now to be the Western world mm. and white Christian Western culture. Um, it's a comment on all of that. So it, the show does begin with the, the Ode to Joy and in, in that, in the Latin lyrics, you know, there are, there are uh, allusions to united in diversity and I suppose the play is trying to question whether we are. Yeah, I, I, if I know Sonia Kelly at all, I know that yes, she is interested in, in serious topics, but she writes about them in a very comic way. I'm guessing the situation of, you know, the foyer of a, of a theatre where effectively control is handed over to those who are queuing, that has great comic potential as well. Great comic potential. We have a box office, um, the, the ticket person is played by the remarkable Anna Healy, who his, her comic generosity is is extraordinary in this in this play and um she really she is the spine of the show and she um she she's her, her performance is amazing and um but yeah i mean there are a lot of sharks swimming underneath the humor i think eugene Inesco was one of the first playwrights i read in their entire in his entirety when i was a teenager and i was mesmerized by um the pliability of of surrealism and absurdism and and how you can speak to so many themes through it uh, without talking about those themes at all. And they, they just grow like monsters in the audience's heads as the, the play goes on. Interestingly enough, though, you talk, you, you, you did, you've mentioned territory a couple of times. Yeah. There, and I'm thinking about comedy and, I suppose, the rules of comedy, the rules of comedy when writing it. You know, the person who's feeding the line, the person who's yeah. delivering the laugh line. There's, there's, there are kind of territorial aspects to that as well. Absolutely, you know, you got to watch your own turf, but you also got to play as a, you know, it's, you know, it, you got to, you got to be a team member as well. Interesting, listen to Donica talking about tension, and the importance of it in terms of the audience experience, and, and humour is tension and release, tension and release, mm. and. It's almost like music in a way, and it's wonderful to see the actors in rehearsal and they're in a corner trying to work out the beats of a line and, and when somebody comes in too soon or when they're supposed to wait and, and they're, they're trying to work out the mathematics of it and uh, they're all remarkable. They are absolutely remarkable and hilarious as well. In it. You also, yeah, Oppenheimer's Return to Hindenburg uh, is the play that everybody oh, yeah. is, is, is queuing for in your yes. production. Yes. So uh, Oppenheimer and uh, nuclear weapons, etc., etc., springs to mind. How much of a comment are you making on that side I'm, of things? I, yeah, I, 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 there's lots of references in the play to sort of World War I and World War II, which, which effectively were drives for territory. Mm. World War I was about a drive for a warm weather port, you know, and very often, you know, war is, is it's marketed as, as a drive for, to liberate people, but very often there's an undercurrent of something else, you, you know, expansionism and empire underneath it all. Um, and the word liberate and empire, they're very connected. And I think th th the play is trying to examine that um, in, in what it's doing. And, and you know, you, you Sonia Kelly, performer, Sonia Kelly, writer, are they two very different people? Are, are you involved in this on a performance level or purely as the writer? Uh, purely as the writer. I mean, I'm there hovering, you know, and, uh, but I, um, I don't have time to be a performer anymore. Um, I'm kind of doing this sort of full time now and um, getting a play like this and particularly in the last few years it's been my entire focus has been Talk to me then a little writing. bit about uh, uh, that, that tension between playwriting and performing uh, you know for you if you're writing for yourself that's one thing if you're writing for somebody else is it a very different Yeah, I, I, you write with people in mind and hopefully they might end up in your play or not um, but um, there is no greater joy than spending, like, you can spend an afternoon 
on a line, trying to get it right and trying to get the balance right and setting up a joke. And, and then you hand that to an actor and then you see them just hit it so cleanly and, and you see it land with an audience. That, for me, that is 10 times more wonderful than doing it myself because I've managed to communicate it successfully to somebody uh, whose brain it didn't grow in but they got it and they knew exactly what to do with it. And that's the best feeling in the world. Really and then is. again, that's that territorial aspect of it. As the writer, you're going to write lines that you think work. Yeah. Um, but sometimes when they get into the rehearsal space, they, they don't work. They don't, or they don't work, or you know, there's elements of this play on the page that we had to sort of um, truncate in order to make them fit the space. You know, a space will transform what is funny and what isn't. And the McLally Theatre is a beautiful stage but it's, it's a tiny stage. Yeah. So it, it, there was certainly a lot of uh, rethinking and you've got to be ready at critical junctures to, to, to change something you've spent years thinking about in a moment in order to serve the experience of the audience. So uh, contrary to popular belief about ego, when it comes to theatre, when it comes to writing and when it comes to performing, ego needs to be left outside the door, in fact. I think there's a, like it's this balance of hubris and humility and you've got to pick up one stick and put down another and you have to have enough hubris and uh, ego to believe you can do it and you've got, to, you've got to put your pride in your pocket and listen to the incredible design team and uh, um, Francis O'Connor has been across this and the remarkable Sarah Joyce uh, who I worked with on Once Upon a Bridge um, and so great minds come into it and sometimes they can open up yours in areas that were mm. completely closed and just deliver the play in a way you never imagined. Was, was furniture really the start of all of this? I remember seying that back in 2018 and thinking, yeah, Sonia Kelly is as much a writer as she is a performer. Uh, yeah, that was the beginning. I'd never <clears throat> look back, absolutely yeah. never. It was after furniture, that was just a whole new departure in my career in the arts and I am so grateful for it because it's just opened up a whole new world and I absolutely it is one of the greatest privileges to be able to write slick contemporary comedy for the Irish stage and um, I'm, I'm not going anywhere so I'm not Well good to hear Sonia and thanks for being with us this evening that's uh, Sonia Kelly and the last return runs at the Mickleally Theatre until July the 23rd as part of the Galway International Arts Festival. Hopefully there will be lots of tickets available. Yes. People won't have to queue for returns. And then it travels off to the Traverse Theatre in, as part of the Edinburgh International Arts Festival. And that's from August the 4th through until August the 28th. Back with more from the Festival Gallery at the Galway International Arts Festival after these. And welcome back to the Galway International Arts Festival. Sam Shepard's modern classic, True West, sets up sibling rivalry as a lens through which to explore deeper questions of artistic authenticity, commerciality, and the inescapable draw of old family patterns of behaviour, which no matter how hard we try to resist, pull us back every time. The play was written in 1979 by Sam Shepard, first produced by Steppenwolf in 1982, starring Gary Sinise, John Malkovich and Laurie Metcalf. was a landmark production for the theatre company at that time, which was less than a decade old, of course, in the 40 years since Steppenwolf has become the byword for quality theatre in the United States. The company revived True West in 2019, and it is that production which is here at the uh, Galway International Arts Festival, running at the Town Hall Theatre here in Galway through until the 23rd of July. Delighted to be joined by co-artistic director of Steppenwolf, Glenn Davies, and the company's executive director, Brooke Flanagan. Sam Shepard's True West, first of all, Glenn, um, the, the play itself and this sibling rivalry that's going on between it. It's a huge play in, in terms of Steppenwolf's history. For an Irish audience that mightn't be as familiar with, with uh, Sam Shepard's play as an American audience would, just give us the basic premise of the piece. Yeah, the, um, well, thank you for having us, first of all, Sean. Um, the, it's about two brothers, uh, two brothers in the West who are um, sort of sibling rival, it's a sort of sibling rivalry play. Um, it is one of the great, I remember when I was in drama school, it was one of the great plays that young men tend to want to be a, to, mm. to do, either in drama school or professionally. You just grow up going, I want to do a Sam Shepard play, and particularly True West, um, because of the direction the play goes. But it's a sort of psychological drama 
uh, in a lot of ways with a lot of funny elements as well, in which you see the brothers trying to best one another who, you know, they're, they're it, Sam Shepard sometimes talks about the characters as uh, one character, but you see two, two sides of the coin. So it's, um, it's, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. I, I often wonder in some ways, is it, is it too simplistic to think of that two sides of the coin being perhaps Sam Shepard himself and many as an artist? Because the fight here essentially between the two brothers is between a, a kind of authenticity and an artistic expression of that and yeah. the, the other brother who has a, an Ivy League university education yeah. and a, who kind of knows how to play the system, how to play the arts game yeah. and how to make money out of it. Yeah, yeah. One, is, uh, one has gone to college and is a, is a, a writer, um, a, a film writer, or t- attempting to be a film writer. And the other one is a... Um, <laughs> Um, a thief, essentially, and um, yeah, he we, we, he arrives with the television under his arm, yeah. but we know he has stolen. Yes, yes, and so um, they they trade barbs throughout, and they're com- they have competing interests. One of which is the love of their mother, or their the desire to impress their mother, or you know, uh, the one brother is in the home and that the mother has told him to watch over, and the other brother says at one point she could have just as easily said to me, "Can watch watch over the house," but obviously he's a thief, so she. She probably would have, but yeah, you see them trying to one up one another. This sort of this top dog underdog interplay between the two characters—it's really compelling. And I guess Brooke, as, as executive director of Steppenwolf, that tension between the need to balance the books and the need for artistic expression—you're at the heart of that. Absolutely right. And at Steppenwolf, we're blessed because we're not only a theater, but we're, as an ensemble theater, we are the home for nearly 50 generative artists in the United States. And so we have a responsibility not only to make the financial model work for a performing arts organization, but also to make sure that artists like Glenn um, and the other 48 members of our ensemble can come and dream big and take huge risks artistically. And sometimes that manifests itself into a brilliant, bold, audacious production like you'll see with True West. Mm. Um, And other times it manifests in terms of taking different turns as an artist, right? Going from an actor to a playwright like Tracy Letts did, or going um, from a playwright to trying their hand at directing. In our current production that we have running here, Randall Arney, who is the director, actually... um, has directed it now twice, and both times, 40 years apart, has ended up having to step into the role of Saul. So you'll see him also on stage as yes. an actor. Saul is the, the producer who's part of the story as well. It's the forehander, essentially. The two brothers, the producer and the mother, those are the, yeah. f- the four characters that we get there. That's right. Uh, but, but it's a very democratic organization, Steppenwolf, because you, you talk about this 49 people. You, you didn't, dis- how, does, how did it even come to pass that you guys are a joint artistic director and executive director respectively? Yeah, Glenn, do you want to tell the story of you and Audrey's appointment as co-artistic Yeah, directors? yeah, the, so the, the company is 46 years old and we've never officially had, uh, and I use that word purposely, officially had co-leadership model in terms of the artistic director. Um, there was a brief moment in the history that, that the founders talk about in which two people ran the company together for about six months, but uh, no one really talks about that. Uh, but we uh, essentially, there was a very democratic process. Our former artistic director, uh, Anna D. Shapiro, was, uh, had been in the position for six years and um, she had let us know that she was uh, stepping down. Mm. Um, to pursue other amazing interests. And so um, the ensemble did a in-house search, which we always do in terms of who would be the next artistic director. And my co-artist director, Audrey Francis, and myself uh, essentially got the most votes. And so we had a conversation and we said, hey, what if we did this together? Because both of us, she's also a director and an actor. I'm an actor and a producer, and we have other uh, interests as well. So we thought, okay, um, why, why don't we present ourselves as a duo to, uh, to take over the company uh, artistically? And so we did that. Um, was, were you at the helm, or the pair of you at the helm, when the decision was made to revive um, True West back in 2019? Because it is a play that has such a history for the company. It yeah. really did. Yes, the company was in existence and was doing well, but that was a hugely important production with Gary Sinise and John Malkovich, Laurie Metcalf, uh, but back at that time. Was it your decision to go back to it, and how daunting a prospect was that? 
I was an artistic associate, so I was a part of the artistic team, but it was, it was ultimately Anna's decision uh, to go back to it, which I think was very prescient uh, in terms of what the conversation has become about the play. Um, but I think the, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, from, from my recollection, um, uh, True West was the first plate that the company took to New York. Mm. And so, or one of, if not the first, uh, one of, but it essentially put Steppenwolf on the map in terms of um, what we were doing outside of, outside of Chicago. And so, you know, and a lot of actors uh, at the time went in and out of those roles. We talk about Gary and Gary Sinise uh, and John Malkovich. John Malkovich. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it was it was there was a Laurie Metcalf was in it. You know, Randall Arney was in it. Fran Guinan was in it. Like it was a rotating. They did it for like a year, and it we would rotate actors from the Chicago company into the into um, the Chicago company and um, up to New York. Up yeah, up to New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think one of the things that's so um, seminal about this piece and reflective of our ethos is what you spoke about earlier, which is the thematic relevance, right? Which is to say that when you look at the father uh, figure in the play who is never seen, but only mentioned, and the mother who is the ultimate domesticate, and then that that, um, question of in your life, right, how you go from a feral being into one that is groomed into being successful in society, right? And, And I think for our company, right, we have always been very grounded in the primal expression of being human and that manifestation on stage. And so to have this push-pull that's evidenced in this play um, was very much in alignment with who we were in the early days and, again, is still in the ethos of our ensemble members, you know, several generations later, and it's exquisite to watch it on stage. Yeah, and, and I mean, Sam Shepard as a playwright and True West as a play, they're, they're very masculine. Uh, it's a very masculine play. Does this new, this revival or this new production address that uh, gender balance in some new way? <laughs> That's a very interesting. I don't know, Glenn, if you have a different yeah. perspective. For me, it is a very, it is, um, when I viewed it, I mean, it is definitely a very masculine yeah. play, and, and Sam's work is known for, for having that sort of, um, like, reeking of pheromones, right? Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, the way that John and Amir, who play the brothers, um, portray it, it is a very intimate and authentic struggle between two individuals who, as siblings do, love each other to the end of the earth and will always be in fierce competition with each other. And so I, I didn't view it through a necessarily a masculine lens. There was just like extraordinary humanity in their scene work. Yeah, a lot of the plays that Steppenwolf has historically done, we will we'll often talk about how it's... Um, it, their place for actors, and this is definitely one. Uh, the, the, a lot of the talk around the play, even in 1982, was how amazing those actors were. Like, the play had been around for, like you said, about 10 years, but then something about the step of production, something about having John Malkovich and Gary Sinise and all the other guys in those roles elevated the play, which was already beautiful. And so I think the, the sort of masculine elements that you talk about in the early days of Steppenwolf were very present, right? And then you have the lone uh, female character being Laurie Metcalf, who, uh, if you know her work, is also, you know, very full of vitality. Yeah. And um, Played in Galway by Aura Jones, one of our ensemble members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, um, so I think the un- uh, underlying themes of the play are all present, as, as, as uh, Brooke just said, but yeah, there is that, that tinge of, yeah. like, guys, guys getting into a room and thrashing about. I should mention the seagulls here in Galway who have been very much part of today's <laughs> yes. they are They're very they, present. They are ever-present yes. and omnipresent, but that is it from this uh, arena special from the Galway International Arts Festival. I should tell you uh, that the Steppenwolf production of True West is at the Town Hall Theatre through until the 23rd details of that and everything happening at the festival on GIAF.ie Thanks to the festival, all our guests this evening on sound, Pather Carney and Kieran Cullen The programme was produced by Keshi and Sinead Egan. We will be back in Galway tomorrow night once again Join us then. John Creedon will be with you after the news